This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Monday. I mean, Paul. <laughs> I'm Sunday. I mean, Brian. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm confused. Oh, wait. I mean, Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. And we're going to talk about The Man Who Was Thursday, um, which is a great title by uh, G.K. Chesterton. A Nightmare is the subtitle, yes. Uh, first published in 1908. Um, it, the, what I knew about this book going in is that any expectations I have will be subverted. <laughs> so I didn't have a whole lot of expectations. Uh, and they were still subverted. So, um, but it kind of, mm. kind of, I kind of got what I thought I was getting as well. The description for this book is very, very um, hard to understand from a mainstream book point of view. Its genre is thriller, philosophical novel, adventure, fantasy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. It's <laughs> <That's> accurate. <laughs> yeah. I wanted a book about anarchists, and I kind of got one, but oh, not was really. Not really. No. No, not I... really. I think this is this is a book from a from a period of time in which anarchists were like the hot topic, right? Yeah. Uh, Pre World War One, um, those who want to bring down the government, bring down the system, and everybody's a dynamiter. Um, but uh, did you? I, I did read this on the Wikipedia entry earlier this year. I guess was um, Michael Collins, you know the uh, Irish. Oh uh, yeah, right. Irish um, nationalist. I was going to say dynamiter, but <laughs> that's not the right word for him. Um, and not the guy who was uh, went to the moon either. The 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 old fashioned uh, yeah nationalist. This was his favorite book apparently. And, really. Uh, and he took the idea of, uh, oh yeah, how's it go? If you don't seem to be hiding, nobody hunted you out. Um, as yeah. His um, mantra, I guess. Um, but I, I thought, oh, sorry, go for it. No, I was just going to say, you said it's not really a book about anarchy, but I think it's about anarchy against anarchy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, we need Julie to explain this book to me, but. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, did you guys know that Orson Welles did an adaptation of this? Uh, for... I, I just listened to that last night. Yeah, what did you think oh, of it? How was it? The adaptation was, how can I put this in a uh, in a clear, concise manner? The adaptation was a lot clearer than this actual book. Yeah, so, but he messes with it a lot. It was right? his interpretation then. Right, but it's but it's distilled down to one hour and strips away a lot of the what the heck is this a dream and makes it re- much more straightforward and much easier to understand. I this book finally clicked for me after hearing Orson Welles's oh. adaptation. I only discovered it last night, so that's why I didn't tweet about it earlier. I apologize. Yeah, I, uh, I I was listening to it last night as well. Um, what I noticed was that the the what, one female character in the book uh, she gets a lot more play in the in the audio drama. <laughs> well, that's surprising. 
Yeah, I mean, she she shows up on the last page. <laughs> and she's the last word of the book, right? Yes. Girl? Yeah, something like that. Paul, yeah. was, was, the, uh, did uh, Wells do this as part of his uh, series? Th- yeah, Mercury Theater yeah. on the Air. Yep. Yeah, when he did uh, not just War of the Worlds, but also Dracula and you know, Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm. Yep, the, the, yep, it was part of this part of that series. It was before, yep. it, it, it was the first series before he became Campbell Playhouse because the opening stuff is Mercury Theater on the Air, not Campbell Playhouse. And it was his original run that he did this. And Ooh. he plays Syme, I think, right? Yeah, he plays Syme. Mm-hmm. Oh, too bad because later in life, Wells perfect for Sunday. Yes, <laughs> yes, in every way. <laughs> He's got the voice for it, sure. But did uh-huh. he have the face that could that we thought was evil, but instead was pure good? <laughs> no wonder it was frightening. Well, they used him for advertising a lot uh, in his old. Uh, I remember that, that. That's the first time I had heard of Orson Welles was basically those wine commercials. Yeah, we used to be clean. yeah. I mean, there were TV. It's like, who's this guy? Why do I care? He's advertising <laughs> right. I didn't know at the time. I had not seen Citizen Kane. I had no idea about the World of Worlds podcast. It's just like this old fat guy is talking about wine on television, huh? Well, my parents you- that that was my parents' chance to educate us. There weren't you know videotapes and stuff back then, but they would say, oh. He did this, and he did this, and he was amazing, and he did that. So we had the full basic grounding because of those ads. My parents parents weren't into taking to the movies. I didn't get to see a movie in a theater until I was 12. So, no, my parents didn't educate me. Oh, no. They didn't take us to the movies. I'm sorry. That was their time. We didn't get to go to the movies with them either, but they did talk to us. So, therefore, in their talking, they communicated this information. <laughs> well, if we're going to talk about uh, large people who get refracted through later media sources, remember that uh, in Sandman, the character of Gilbert is pretty clearly G.K. Chesterton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And he was very large. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, That's true. Mean, I think. Um, I have to confess, though, uh, if, if we're going to be confessing about um, you know our our developmental stages of not knowing certain things, I don't think I've read much Chesterton besides this. I've never read the uh, oh. mysteries, um, nor have I seen their different film versions, and I, I don't think I've read much more besides this actually. So I, I have to confess that's a, a blind spot for me. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to read him uh, oh. this book is because this is one of those books. Anything that shows up in Famous Fantastic Mysteries, I kind of want to read, you know. Um, and that's where this was reprinted, which is it's it's a very weird magazine because it's called Famous Fantastic <laughs> Mysteries. There's no mysteries in it at all. <laughs> well, this um, is pretty mysterious. It, it, well. Yeah, the people who call this a mystery, uh, I mean, because it's got detectives in it, but come on, what kind of mystery is It's a metaphysical mystery. Hold on, maybe I'm the, okay, I know I'm the the lesser one here, but when people are suddenly being revealed, it wasn't until halfway through the book I started going, wait, that person's probably not an anarchist either. (laughs) I mean, when Professor de Worms, or whatever his name was, was, or Dr. de Worms, was revealed, I was just like, what? Get out of town. I couldn't believe it. I was astounded. And then the next guy, also astounded. He took off his glasses and, oh, he's he keeps, not who you think keep he doing is. the same trick over and over. And keep right. And so um, after the marquee, 
I finally learned my lesson and didn't trust anyone anymore to be who they said they were. And so for me, it was that kind of a mystery. I was intrigued and surprised by all that stuff. It was at the end when I kind of just went, well, now he's just, I, I don't even know where I am. I, I'm upside down, which is G.K. Chesterton's thing. And I, um, I have trouble with his fiction except for Father Brown who's much more straightforward these are short stories where the little priest Father Brown because of his observation of life is often the one to solve the mysteries or well he's always the one to solve the mysteries kind of a la Miss Marple in that way and um, I read his other fiction but often not finished it because it does this same thing where it just suddenly takes off in this direction where you're just like I don't know what's going on but I don't have to read this and his nonfiction will kind of do the same thing, but it's got more for me to hang on to. So I've read more of his nonfiction. So I was interested. I've always meant to read this. So I was glad you chose it. Yeah, um, I, I have read one other piece by him. I, I, I've seen some of the Father Brown adaptations around, uh, but uh, I did a show. Uh, it hasn't come out yet for reading short and deep on a very short story of his called The Angry Street, A Bad Dream, which is, mm-hmm. again, a nightmare sort of story. Um, I'll just read the first paragraph of that because it's kind of fun. I cannot remember whether this tale is true or not. If I read it through very carefully, or if I read it through very carefully, I have a suspicion that I should come to the conclusion that it is not. But unfortunately, I cannot read it through very carefully because, you see, it is not written yet. The image of an idea of it clung to me through a great part of my boyhood. I may have dreamt it before I could talk, or told it to myself before I could read, or read it before I could remember. On the whole, however, I am certain that I did not read it, for children have very clear memories of things like that. And of the books of which I was really fond, I can still remember not only the shape and bulk uh, and binding, but every position of the printed words on many of the pages." On the whole, I incline to the opinion that it happened to me before I was born. Um, and then the story goes on to relate a uh, basically a shopkeeper who or businessman like Scrooge a little bit who uh, is set in his ways and he walks uh, a certain path down the street every day um, of his life uh, as a shopkeeper or whatever it is he does. And... Um, one day the street rebels against him. It 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 becomes incredibly steep, um, and when that doesn't you know fail to stop him in his journey, um, it basically casts him off into space. And uh, it it it's it did I guess it was a little inoculation for reading this because I sort of saw what he was doing pretty much from the first chapter of. Uh, of the book, I didn't know, you know, what all the revelations and twists and turns would be, but I can see this is a very interesting guy. He's one of the, he's he's a a very rare bird these days. Um, I think Chesterton is a uh, he's a conservative intellectual. If that if you can feel that in in this book, I think that explains like a lot of what's going on. Well, that's I I have to admit, uh, well, two things I have to admit. One is I've forgotten. One of his stories that I absolutely love, uh-huh. it's a crazy story called uh, The Tremendous Adventures of Major Brown uh-huh. from 1905. And it's basically, 
if you know the movie The Game, it's yes. a version of that taking place in Edwardian England. Oh. What's what's the movie The Game about? I don't know that one. It's, it's antecedent to alternate reality games, where basically you set up a game in real life, but you don't tell the people that it is a game. Uh, ah. it's, it's a adventure movie. It's it's pretty good. It's I'd say it's one act too long, but um, but basically Major Brown is very very bored and ends up. I don't want to spoil it for you because it's a lot of fun, but he ends up stumbling into a situation that makes his life more worth living. Um, mm-hmm. And through a lot of deception, and I, I'd love to read that the uh, collection. I, uh, I totally spaced that one. I, I recommend it. It's a cute story. Mm. Uh, but the the conservative intellectual part, uh, I, I agree with. That's there are conservative intellectuals now. Um, very they, rare. They're very they're, rare. They're just some of them you might find uh, terrifying. Um, but I, you know, this is one. When I first read this, I. I I read it as a as a screed against uh, anarchism, and I, I really disliked it because it's it's I'm much more sympathetic to anarchism. Than sure, I sure. Re- you say that sure, sure, like anybody would be. I don't think well, anarchy is a good thing. But that's because you're a conservative, too. No, it's <laughs> you because totally his definition of anarchy is you just go and start blowing people up. I mean, it's like the ISIS of the day yes, in that it, way. It was the ISIS of the day. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm not sympathetic to ISIS either. That's not how you treat people. Done. Uh, but, but notice, notice um, uh, I'm not sympathetic to ISIS either. <laughs> I'm not sure. You just equated them. No, no, I didn't. I said that they were of the day. You know, uh, think about, think about ISIS as a specific. So, uh, I'm sorry, Brian, you were going to say something. Go for it. Yes, let let Brian talk. Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't, I didn't like it as a critique, and I still don't think it's a good critique because no, it's 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 so strange because it isn't really a critique of of anarchism at all. It it seems to be, but it's not. Yeah, but let him. Yeah, go for it. Well, this is this is the from the time period was the uh, caricature of, ter- of anarchists as terrorists, which set aside about seventy at that point about seventy five years of nonviolent anarchism, which were actually you know huge, uh, very very significant. Um, so I mean that's it's a classic problem, where, and it still persists to this day, uh, where we now have almost two hundred years of nonviolent or at least non terroristic anarchism. Um, but I rereading it now, I enjoyed the hell of the book because I I really relished his fantastic turns of phrase. Mm-hmm. Yes. Also the the complete collapse of the story by the end. The yep. uh, even lampshaded um, by that you know in books when characters wake up from a dream. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it it was so it undermined itself, and even that. That fantastic speech that Symes gives about the you know, lighting the lamp against the darkness, it it seems unhinged, um, and so I, I I mostly just just enjoyed this for a, a fun a fun romp a confection this time. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because it uh, that's that's what I sort of inoculating myself against was the idea that it was going to actually be about anarchism, but what you know what I like about the setup is not what I'm get, given as my delivery, right? That and this is a this is sort of a, a book that gets into the reality of police going after um, any sort of subversive group. And then it sort of abandons that and says, no, no, you don't understand. It's about God <laughs> and your relationship to him and your relationship to your 
to yourself on earth and and that so that ending is not i knew it was not gonna uh deliver what i wanted but i still wanted to read it anyways um and so julie um i want to give you this this that some people call him a philosopher i've not read his uh his metaphysical writings but uh-huh. uh, I do know about this. I've heard it before, and I'll just read it from the Wikipedia entry. A Wikipedia entry, it's the Chesterton's Fence. So this is a kind of um, uh, axiom, I guess, that uh, is super conservative in the small C kind. Um, and it, it and is exactly the kind of uh, intellectual conservative thing that, that people appeal to um, when they are, you know, Basically, they're going from, not from the gut, but from, you know, they're trying to say, well, look, I know you're a whack job liberal, but <laughs> here's how we're going to convince you. Here's the principle. Chesterton's fence is a principle that reforms should not be made until the reasoning behind the existing state of affairs are understood. Uh, and then it comes from uh, a book called The Thing, Why Am I a Catholic? Um, in the chapter... Uh, in the drift from demasticity. And then here's a quote. In the matter of reforming things, as, a dis- as distinct from deforming them, there's a nice Chesterton, uh-huh. right? There is one plain and simple principle, a principle which probably will be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law. Let us take for, let us say, for sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road the more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use for this. Let's clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use for it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. <laughs> Go away and think. Then when you come back and tell me what you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. And this seems completely reasonable, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Completely reasonable. There's my answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course. Um, the problem is that it's, it's, exactly, it's exactly the worst kind of, I don't know, it's kind of the, it's, it's why, well, why conservatism, conservatism should be the default. And I totally get this. I don't see the use for this for us. Let's cut it down. Right? Obviously. Right. That's another uh, principle we would all stand to say, wait, wait, wait. You might want to keep that rainforest. You might want to keep that forest. Um, you might want to, you know, not eliminate this species, right? All of these are good, solid, conservative uh, positions. And it's hard to defend against this kind of idea. Um, and he's so persuasive uh, in that he's an intellectual force and mm-hmm. he's witty Um these are the kinds of conservatives I'm afraid of. <laughs> the dangerous, <laughs> intelligent ones who make well, I think, sensible I think, arguments. But to be afraid of them is wrong because you should be then using that fence theory, right? Is why, what is it that I'm afraid they might talk me out of? I need to re-examine either what they're saying or what I'm saying or both because because I would say... It, it, this is the Catholic in me, which a lot of people would not maybe get why I would say this, but there's good on both sides. You can't just take one approach or the other. But to examine what everybody has said, this is like looking at history, looking at um, the wisdom that has come down from the ages, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, 
a lot of the science has changed, so maybe we need to change the way we think about this. A lot of the thinking of, you know, development of societies and everything has changed. But does that mean we need to throw out the idea that, um, oh, I don't know, <sighs> taking care of the poor is a good thing? You know, I mean, it's just that thing of don't just act without knowing the context for what's going on. And it doesn't mean you ha- that it has to paralyze you. But you do have to accept that each side has its own value and probably a good, noble ideal behind why they want to do what they want to do. So what is it they're trying to achieve? Where do you meet Energy! Them? Don't you understand? The system must be destroyed! <laughs> he shakes his I would like to point out here, no. speaking of starting to say conservative and all this stuff and uh you know so terry pratchett who was not conservative i would say i think and he was certainly um an atheist and all these other things i found an interview with him where uh with let's see it's on a blog called all manner of thing oh new york times book review and it says sell us on your favorite overlooked or underappreciated writer and he says gk chesterton interesting these days recognized, that is, if he is recognized at all as the man who wrote the Father Brown stories, my grandmother actually knew him well and pointed out that she herself lived on, you know, the same place as he did. And um, anyway, he doesn't really go into it further, but later down he says, you're hosting a literary dinner party, which three writers are invited? Mark Twain, G.K. Chesterton, and Neil Gaiman, because he knows how to order the best sushi. So um, anyway... It's one of those things where, and I think I remembered reading this, but now I can't find it, and I didn't stop to grab my copy of Good Omens. I believe that Neil Gaiman and um, Terry Pratchett dedicated Good Omens to G.K. Chesterton, a man who really knew what was going on. And so what that does is behoove us to say, these guys think outside the box. They're not so worried about the labels. They're worried about what they find there. And so that kind of goes yeah. back to the gate thing. Let's look around and see what else is there outside of those labels. Uh, you know? I, 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 my labeling him a conservative is not anywhere in the Wikipedia entry. It's from my reading of his stuff. I'm like, I'm not saying I you're see wrong. What you're doing, and and the thing is, is I'm not sure that I don't know much about Terry Pratchett. I'm not sure that Neil Gaiman's particularly liberal um, in any respect. I don't. I, I, he he's certainly not you know deeply reactionary uh mm-hmm. you know he he oh, wears yeah. all black he he's he he dresses kind of uh you know gothy <laughs> but that doesn't you know this uh chesterton carried a sword cane i don't think any <laughs> i don't think any time in his life did he actually need a sword cane right. but his the people he admired carried sword canes so he carries a sword king, you know? He was a real character. Let's just put it like that. Um, he, go ahead. He quotes uh, Alexander Pope uh, towards the end from the Dunciad, and uh, Pope actually had to fight people a lot. Uh, yeah. You know, Pope's quite a character himself, being uh, a Catholic in an anti-Catholic age and also being uh, a dwarf, basically. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah, he carried a big dog with him called Bounce, um, in part for self-defense, uh, much more violent time, um, yeah. and the Dunciad is actually extraordinarily violent. It's it's hilarious. I mean, it's basically um, Pope targeting every writer and every person he doesn't like in London in the London literary scene and tormenting them. It's it's so it's like it's kind of like the uh, um, uh, you know the, the uh, 
contemporary uh, attacks in um, the Inferno from Dante. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They've done as low comedy. I mean, there's a big race through a sewer. I mean, it's it's hilarious stuff. Um, well, that's the rape of the lock too, right? Which is the only thing I know about. Um, where he's just going, this stuff is ridiculous. Yep. Let me show you how ridiculous it is. Well, that was the great, great age of uh, satire um, and uh, it really uh, often ferocious stuff. I would like to um, mention that I didn't. Exp- I don't know why, because Chesterton often he turns things upside down, and when he does, mm-hmm. he can be so funny. I was laughing at this book so much at the beginning, especially. Yep. Yes, the, yeah, the, the poets' duel, basically. Yes, the poets who the one is like, oh yes, I love lists. Lists are the best, and the conventional poet. <laughs> Is, you know, like, are you insane? And then later, the list poet, who turns out to be signed, says, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot we were supposed to be unconventional, and he's silenced. Because to be a poet who loves lists is unco- is really unconventional. <laughs> well, I was like, ah! Oh. All this wonderful uh, arch uh, uh, humor in the beginning, even if the people were... Um, that young man with the long auburn hair and the impudent face... That young man was not yes, really yes. a poet, but surely he was a poem. The old gentleman with the wild white beard and the wild white hat. That venerable humbug was not really a philosopher, but at least he was a cause of philosophy and others. Right. You know, the scientific gentleman with the bald, egg-like head and the bare, bird-like neck had no real right to the heirs of science he had assumed. He had not discovered anything new in biology, but what biological creature could he have discovered more singular yeah. than himself? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, it, and that, that's a pre- preview of the ending as well, right? Yes. It, it gets uh, pretty sad. A man well, who stepped into the social atmosphere felt as if he'd stepped into a written comedy. Yes. Well, and the whole beginning of the book, because I know um, we were supposed to be joined by someone else who, to my not, great yeah. Yeah, surprise, just could not stand this. He could not get into it. And so I was already apprehensive, and then I was really apprehensive. And I started reading, and I was so enchanted by it i just yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why uh, why he didn't get into no. it but I, but i think you know it's sort of um it's sort of unfixed is, is what's going on it's right? kind of, like it's right and, you don't and really so, have a grounding in in uh, what you're where anything is so uh, the scene for me that's most like that in the book i don't know how far scott got in but when uh, it's the duel, right, where he keeps poking <laughs> yes. him and poking him, and eventually, you know, the guy's taking off parts of his body. <laughs> yes. Like, well, how how deep down does this go? And at that point, I'm like, he's a robot, <laughs> right? He's, he's disassembling himself. Yes. And I, I'm I'm not sure that that's what uh, Chesterton is going for, but it's certainly the effect. Um, and I think. Um, Scott is also, he's also a, a conservative in a certain sense, but um, that might be a little too far for him. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know I, what I mean? It's like, I was thinking well, about, how do I oh, ground right. myself in this story? He's a writer, right, as well. Right. Scott's a writer. And, he, he you know, uh, when I, whenever I listen to writers review, you know, fiction writers review books, they, they sort of do it from a writer's point of view. Mm-hmm. And not a reader's point of view, and I think that that it can it can deeply affect you know your understanding of a book is you, you're seeing how it was constructed. Well, uh, the subtitle I, here, I think, is the operative right <laughs> description of what's going on. 
That's what I was going to say. He tells you right up front, this is a nightmare. And in the first chapter, there are so, and it goes on, but there are so many places where he is saying things like, this is a fantasy. This is a fantastic village. It could not have possibly existed. Um, And I wrote some of them down. I can't, let's see. Um, So we're warned. It says, what followed might as well have been a dream. These two fantastics quitted their fantastic town. And he's over and over and over saying, this isn't real, this isn't real, this isn't real. But we don't read it like that because that's not how you really read stuff like that. And it made me, it did make me think, so I was, between Scott saying that, it made me pay attention. So I was grateful for it because it made me think also of when he and I were talking about Paradiso and mm-hmm. the Divine Comedy. Mm-hmm. And he had real trouble with Dante going to the moon and going to Mars and going to Venus and going to all these places because <laughs> Dante was saying it in poetical, fantastic yep. talk because you can't really do that, of course, in Dante's time especially. And he kept trying to – his brain kept going to all the things we know now. It's funny. And, one, uh, it, and somebody it, at it, one point says, this is just allegorical. You're just – we're all coming to visit you in your head, by the way. And then he went, oh, okay. You know, so – Anyway, it's, so, go ahead. it's funny because you're you're a conservative, small C conservative, I think, and and he's a conservative, small C conservative. Yeah. But he's a smaller C conservative, and it's like he likes hard science fiction. You know, like like yeah. wait a second here, this doesn't seem reasonable to me. You know, I I was just thrown out of the book because, and I'm like, well, that's hilarious because, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, it's, uh, yeah, I I I kind of see why why he. Uh, he didn't like it as well. And it's also because, you know, he was raised Catholic. You're a convert. And so yes, was Chesterton, right? There's, oh, there's yeah. Kind of, and um, later in life. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's not like somebody said, you know, you know, you should you should uh, become a Catholic as much as you're 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 sort of drifting towards it. And he's saying like Chesterton, his he credits his wife for bringing him to Anglicanism. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, no, no, not enough. <laughs> go old school all the way well and scott left the church for a while i mean not not formally denouncing it but he just went away from catholicism and he had to think his way back into it so he's done that but it's just i yeah i don't know if that affects it or not i just think he's a different kind of reader you know um but also the thing that chesterton does and this is if you're not ready for it, it and it says symes had for a flash the sensation that the cosmos had turned exactly upside down mm-hmm. that all trees were growing downwards and that all stars were under his feet and then came slowly the opposite conviction for the last 24 hours the cosmos had really been upside down but now the capsized universe had come right side up again and so the whole book is to me the the fantastic stuff that happened at the end where i was like what did i just you know wow that was the worst dream i ever had it was a nightmare but it was kind of amazing and wonderful at the same time was that whole concept that he also says where we've been looking at everything from the back if we could just see it from the front yeah we we can't see clearly and that's what the whole book is about we aren't seeing clearly i do think that's where the where the book's theme actually finally is made manifest for it's like he's pointing the big, the big flashing arrow. Like this is what I mean, guys. This is what I mean. Yeah, I like. And that. that's what he does in the Everlasting Man, also, which is I my favorite of his, and that's his book, looking at history. It's a response to H.G. Wells's book, retelling history. Right. 
and and he's saying everybody makes all these assumptions, but let's look at the proof. Oh, wait, for things like, and at the time, this would have been, you know, in the 20s or earlier, um, you know, that cavemen dragged their wives around by their hair. And he got, he's like, this is what somebody made up. No one has proof. And I went, oh, my gosh, that's accurate. Nobody does have proof of how they lived back then. And so he goes through yeah, history that a way. Big on uh, evolution in here as well. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I I wanted to throw this quote in before it gets too far back. You're talking about uh, in the back, in the front, and uh, and reverse and up up and down. He's basically shaking the reader, right? Mm-hmm. He's saying you have no firm fixed ground. Um, uh, and then wh- where when, where you land after that, you'll find wherever you land, you'll find God or something like that. Is kind of what he's saying. But I, I want I want this quote because it, it was about the back and the front, <laughs> it's, and it, it made me laugh. I sent it to you guys. Uh, they say my walk was very respectable, and that seen from behind, I looked like the British Constitution. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, what does that mean, right? So this, yeah. <laughs> the thing the thing is about it that's so funny is that, of course, there is no British Constitution, right? There is no... Single document. Oh, yeah. Single document. Like, like if, 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 you, if you deeply understand what this means, basically, is that he's saying, I am all of, all of the buildup of, of, of law and uh, jurisprudence uh, since uh, 1066, right? Basically. Right. Um, which is ridiculous, but... but that's a it, conservative view exactly right that's exactly he's telling you he's telling you i am super conservative look at this um <laughs> how can i be a dynamiter that's why i have to wear these glasses or this beard or this whole uh, this whole uh and then the poet who's not a poet who is a poet right and he's truly holding up most of the time the common working man as he would have called it the average person He's yeah, always it, saying the average the person would understand this is this is ridiculous or this you know he's always calling back to that's his comparison with what's reality, and, and that's and why when he takes he his glasses off, I look too ordinary. No one would believe. He me. makes some good points with it too. Like uh, one of the lines in in here, and I think Brian will like this one. Is uh, I'm going by memory now. Um, he says uh, <laughs> he, he just likes to say stuff and then see what happens. I, I think is. <laughs> It's kind of the way I write, as well as I write something down and say, "Ooh, that sounds good. What's it mean?" And I try and work work it out. Um, he does the same thing with um, with uh, he says, "No, no true common person or no no peasant uh, wants anarchy. They want the protection of the state." Um, whereas the millionaires, every millionaire is at heart an anarchist. Um, now we turn that to billionaires, and you're exactly right today, right? <laughs> Those these petty little laws, they do not apply to me. Are you kidding me? No one rules over me. Yeah, there, there are so many ways this gets anarchism wrong, and that's that's one of them that's easily... Of course, he's, he's, he's completely, like, <laughs> he's completely subverting the whole idea for his own purposes. It absolutely is not an anarchist book. And, but it is... It is fun to have the idea of uh, of plutocrats as uh, anarchists. That's nice, yeah, that's, right? Uh, it's yeah. it's, su- it's super cute, but it's like uh, you're really twisting the idea because the the people who are uh, you know what what to me is so interesting is that the people who are at a WTO protest, right, who are wearing masks, the agent provocateurs, that not that there's very many of them, but <laughs> ones that that people. Um, People think of you know as the true anarchists. 
uh, to me, what's so interesting about this book is he's actually pointing at a real thing where, uh, you know, during the Black Panther era or any type Mm -hmm. of any type of um, uh, things are not right. Let's protest in the streets. Let's like get organized. Right. Well, but the thing is, is the people saying let's blow stuff up. A lot of them are policemen. Oh yeah, that's that's actually one of the fun things about this book. Reading it, that's right. Is that uh, a lot of the uh, war on terror um, plots that have been revealed since December eleventh have often involved very energetic, shall we say, FBI contributions. Yeah, uh, and that, yeah. and that's always been the case. But this book sort of just makes it into a joke. But it, I want I want a sort of a hardcore real version of this book where I mean this is also uh, kind of Philip K. Dickian in that you know right. you've got the cop who's who's really a drug dealer who's also doesn't know he's a drug dealer because yeah. he's wearing a ma- you know he's got a mask and all all that stuff th- th- this doesn't go in that direction it has a completely different reveal in the end but the fact that yeah everybody in the in the council of anarchists yeah. is a cop. Um, well, that that is the, not uh, the <laughs> estimates are quite high that most Paul, of the people in yeah. a lot of these subversive organizations are 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 actually cops. You, you're making me think of a Scandal Darkly where, where exactly yeah where, where Bob and Fred and Bob uh, Arctor and yeah Arctor Arctor and Arctor's boss is, is is actually his girlfriend in disguise. His girlfriend is actually his <laughs> boss in disguise, and it's like. I mean, there's actually one true anarchist problem, and that's of course uh, Robert Downey's Downey's character. But everyone else is almost seems like yeah, they're all informing on each other, all looking for for the drug, and they're all just posing posing as one as the other, alternately not knowing who's what. It's, that I I did get that sort of feel when we started seeing like everybody on this council was being cops. I did think of a scanner dark like. Huh, I wonder if Philip K. Dick had read this book. I wonder. It uh, it also reminded me of that fantastic scene in the middle of Do Androids Dream when they uh when uh Deckard stumbles into a police station. Which a fake is, police station, yeah. Came by the replicants. Uh, you know, one of the and great whether they know they're they're fake cops or not. Yeah. Right. Well let me let me ask you guys this. This is just on rereading the book, I'm I'm trying to rethink of the end. Um and maybe Julie, you can help us out. Oh no! It's, yes. Is Sun is Sunday is Sunday Christ? I feel like those last words about "Can you drink the cup I drank?" Mm. That's that's God. Um, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? Because it's that you know have you know you've we've gone through all this. Have you ever suffered? Right. And then the face gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And those are the words. I feel like Sunday is God, and that's why um, when they're dressed in the disguise that reveals them the most as real people, as who they really are, um, that connects with that, too. It's because he did say that he wrote the book about pantheists, which I thought was interesting because I'm like, that's not something that's really on people's radar the way it must have been back then. (laughs) Well, it was on his radar because he's thinking about it, right? Well, right. But the thing is, is that then, to me, the other clue is it's like, you know, when men wake up, as I think Brian was saying, is like, well, okay, here's the thing. He's woken from the dream. He doesn't even really know where he was. But what does he find? Here's beautiful nature. Um, It's blowing uh, sweet breezes and 
he had no idea he'd walked so near London, says he walked by instinct along one white road on which early birds hopped and sang and then found himself outside a fenced garden. Okay, well, garden, Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. There he saw the sister of Gregory, the girl with the gold red hair, cutting lilac before breakfast with the great unconscious gravity of a girl. And so it's like the new heaven and the new earth, um, Adam, the new Adam and Eve, all these things that are promised um, in Christian theology at the end of time. But it's not at the end of time. So what he's saying is, heaven is here. We have to see it correctly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's the re big reveal, right? Uh, the unmasking. Right. Yeah. I was worried that the garden might actually be Gethsemane because we have. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm working on a. I don't. I can't cite a page number. Um, oh yeah. Um, very very towards the end. Uh, mm -hmm. That they're racing and fell behind just by the Captain Google. He stopped his cab as to pack it up. It was addressed to himself, and it was quite a bulky parcel. On examination, <laughs> however, its bulk was found to consist of 33 pieces of paper of no value. Uh, wrapped uh, uh, the silver. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, the yeah. question of uh, a betrayal, because they are there to betray Sunday. They're there to mm -hmm. destroy. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, of all days of the week, he's Sunday. So that's, you know, another good reason for him to be. Well, honest. and I... Yeah, Gethsemane would have been before, maybe, when they're running around. He's mixing it all up here. Chased by everybody, because that's when you're suffering. Are you going to do God's will? I mean, in the Bible. And so, that's why to see that at the end, where it comes down to the natural things of human life that can be so good. It, it's it's really sweet. And I've had time to reread the ending two or three times, so I'm still confused. But those have kind of distilled for me a bit. Um, uh, Rosamond is her name, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and uh, yeah. R Rosamundi, right? So this is another biblical right. Jesus thing. Or well, I, no, maybe I, that's not biblical, but it's... I was like, I don't... It's not no, calling anything to mind, but... No, no, but I was I was thinking that maybe... May, maybe Rosamond was supposed to represent the Virgin Mary. You know, purity, yes. innocence, um, yes, the tra rose. Traditionally, that's the... Yeah. Mm, innocent and pure. Yeah, because, because Eve... Eve eventually falls because she's tempted by the snake. So, that the, so so Rose didn't feel like Eve to me. She felt more like the Virgin Mary as far as... He's mixing it up a lot. Right, but I meant like the new Adam and Eve, essentially that, I mean, basically in Christian theology, you know, at the end of time, the earth is remade as it should be. There's the new he the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. Mm, yeah. And nobody really knows what that is, of course, but um, in my mind, it's always like, oh... Things will be restored to the way they were at the beginning before haven't, everything haven't went wrong. France. <laughs> <laughs> the if Normandy. You love the French food, terrible. yes, of course. Um, with all with all the um, the marchers coming at them, um, was that not crazy? Was yeah, awesome. at, at that oh. at that point in the book, you're like, "What's going on?" <laughs> like you are during it a lot. It was of all the over for signs. I just knew it. Even then, I had not learned my lesson. Just but then, like they that. all say. Uh, they all admit that they have one hope, right? Mm -hmm. One hope that that the man in the black chamber, right, that recruited them in their mm -hmm. secret, you know, their secret society of policemen. Um, very, very conservative, sort of, kind of beautiful, <laughs> but uh, yeah. such like a conservative fantasy that. Well, hang on. If you say a what? secret society of policemen, there's a shorter way of saying that. Which is <laughs> secret policeman? Secret policeman. <laughs> yes. yeah, uh, uh, I I I see the irony here, right? 
I see the, uh, but the, uh, I don't know. Did you see the trailer? Did I send it to you, Julie, for the I 2016 don't. movie? Oh, no, I don't think so, no. It has never, well, it hasn't been released yet on DVD. I don't know if it oh. will be. It's, it's, a, it's set in Italy. Um, did I send it to you, Paul and Ryan? No, I didn't see it. Okay. It's, it's incredibly strange, this video. Um, the trailer, it, it's, it, it's a 2016 adaptation of The Man Who Was Thursday. Fairly high budget. It's set in, uh, in Rome, and the priest is Gabriel Syme. Or Gabriel Syme is a priest who goes undercover um, and finds himself, I don't know, in a very European uh, sex club or something. And and what's so strange is that I kind of see why it could be adapted the way it has been, at least in the trailer, um, because it, it's, it is kind of about faith and about... Uh, I don't know what's right. And part of the movie seems to be set uh, during fascist Italy in the 1930s or 40s. And he's going undercover there as well. He's like, that's interesting. You know, Nazis and uh, and uh, Italian fascists. The thing is, is I don't know how you could do a straight up adaptation of this. Um, <laughs> even even the uh, radio drama is it's it's different. Right, Paul? Yeah, the, the radio drama strips away a lot of the philosophical stuff, makes it a lot more straightforward. Yeah, completely drops the ending, right? Uh, it, it, it drops most of the ending, yeah. Um, I, I do have one other adaptation. I tweeted it at you guys. Um, it's not really an adaptation. It's just it uses the material uh, for its own purposes. Uh, Kim Newman, who I'm not super familiar with, but created the Anno Dracula series of yeah. stories in the universe. <laughs> Um, did a comic book adaptation uh, last year, and I got all five issues. It's called Anno Dracula, eighteen ninety five, Seven Days in Mayhem. And I, all all I knew when I bought the first issue was it's Anno Dracula. Um, I've heard about that, and then I started reading it, and I'm like, okay, this seems to be something to do with the man who was Thursday. Uh. <laughs> there's an uh, yeah. So basically, it's set in uh, I guess eighteen ninety five. Uh, England and Dracula has become the crown prince, uh, having married Queen Elizabeth, uh, Queen Victoria. Um, oh, and yeah. uh, they're That's... in league against the. This is a bunch of people who are anarchists against Dracula. Right? Dracula and the and the whole uh, vampire elite because That's right. The, but uh, of course, let's see. Most of them are vampires themselves <laughs> in the in the Council so, of Seven he, Days. Newman has a lot of fun with this, where you get uh, he gets to bring in basically everything from uh, Victorian and then Edwardian and subsequent history, both real history and pop culture. So you get um, there's a concentration camp uh, on uh, down the Thames where uh, Sherlock Holmes is being imprisoned. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you get how uh, uh, oh, the British did invent them. So yeah, you get uh, <laughs> the name right. You get um, uh, oh, the operetta. Um, Done by um, you know the, the fellows who gave you the Mikado uh, called something like His Majesty's Vampire, which gets the yeah, Martin Sullivan. I'd like to see that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's a it's a lot of fun. I mean, Newman Newman is a uh, is a riot. He uh, he writes a lot of um, straight up uh, horror. He writes a lot of reviews, which are very very good. And he writes um, kind of tongue in cheek satirical stuff. He did a uh, 
a weird detective story about soap operas that was hilarious. Um, but I'm I'm looking forward to reading this. Yeah, like it. He, he did, yeah, he it does... should be out in a trade now. Um, yeah. It was floppies before, and I ju- I want to point out how, how I I had not read the book when I was reading the comic book, but now looking back at it. I note that the way they've depicted Sunday is not only beautiful um, in the sense that he's horrible, uh, <laughs> but also he does what he does in the book, which is to inflate like a balloon, as they describe him, right? Oh. And, and he becomes transparent and all-consuming. And um, some of the ways that Sunday is described, um, uh, at one point he says he swooned and then everything everything after that is the nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, at some point in this story, um, he, Sunday is both the devil and God, I think. And it, it's, it's, there's something about, basically, Sunday is... <coughs> is uh, one, of, one of the descriptions of him is looking at him from his hind parts. Mm-hmm. Right? And we got that again with the... I look like the British Constitution looking at me from behind. Um, right. uh, that's a very biblical uh, description of, you know, talking Moses. about what's... Get thee yeah, behind how, me. how Moses sees God. He Just says, from behind. Yeah, you can't really look at me directly, but if you want to look at me as I walk away, that's cool. Right. <laughs> it's like kind of weird, but... Um, well, that thing of, uh, yeah, you, and, and then so you can't see the whole thing, right? And so right. Th- thinking about this and thinking about that question of, is he God? And I'm going, oh, yeah, I can see where on repeated rereadings, the Christian stuff would become more obvious although i Super saw obvious a, to me uh, a lot I, of the symbolism in, already but that thing i remember thinking about the devil and the you know the the pure good thing and going oh right because that would be the thing where you're just looking at part of it you're not looking again that the whole context or trying to explore how do i see the front of it and therefore you're just accept this one small part and go oh this is the worst thing i ever heard of <laughs> you know so I got another quote I want to throw, throw out. This is the one that made me start laughing right away. And, and uh, I, I did have many out loud laughs out loud um, during, during the reading, especially in the early chapters. Um, the rest, you know, later chapters, I'm smiling most of the time. But uh, this one it was so good, I had, to, I had to stop everything and write it down. He came from a family of cranks. And this explains yeah. his conservative, conservatism, right? This is, in real life, a lot of people who who sort of go the other way is because <laughs> is because their parents were like nuts. He came from a family of cranks in which all the oldest people had all the newest notions. One of his uncles always walked without a hat. Oh, how 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 shocking. <laughs> and another made an unsuccessful attempt to walk nothing but a hat. Yeah. To walk Aren't around with nothing but a yeah. hat. Right. <laughs> Thankfully that's that's kept in the in the Wells adaptation. It sounds yeah, really I, funny I, to hear I, Wells I, talk about I, that. It is pretty good. Um, his turn of phrase like that, he is. Uh, I think that that's at least part of why Chester uh, Chesterton's loved by Gaiman and and um, uh, Pratchett. Pratchett because they 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 are the same kinds of uh, comedian, mm-hmm. in, if you know what I mean. Same, so yes, the same sort of wry sort of look at. Things. Yes, yes, it's exactly yeah. their kind of humor. Also, he himself as a person was evidently so, I don't want to say lovable because that's not it, but he was easy to get along with. So they will say he would be debating somebody like H.G. Wells. They'd have a public debate and they'd just be going at it hammer and tongs and somebody would get a great hit in on him and he'd 
laugh as hard as everyone else. He would just be bending <laughs> double, laughing at the thing that was just said to him. And then afterwards, you know, the person might be so upset, and he'd go over and go, well, that was really great. Should we go out and have dinner together now? Right. You know, so he could just enjoy the person for who he was and kind of go, well, yeah, I don't agree with this stuff, but what does that have to do with you and me? You know, so that kind of comes through in the book, too, when you get into the, mm-hmm. the some of the stuff about when he says, um, he talks about isolation, and he says it, how good Symes felt when he found out that there was somebody there with him, that, that he wasn't alone in this battle. And he says, um, twice, two is not twice one, two is 2,000 times one. Right. And he <laughs> could that extend was... that, yeah, to the people he didn't agree with, necessarily. <laughs> Because in The Everlasting Man, he says, I don't really agree with his take on this history, but I just love his other stuff. He's written some amazing science fiction, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. And fantasy, too. He's, he's a great fantasist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there was a line, I think, on the Wikipedia entry, it said uh, about how somebody said, uh, was it george bernard shaw he was talking about oh yeah maybe that's who he would be debating with a lot mm-hmm. he was saying um uh oh he said to him you'd think uh, i guess this is during world war one he says you'd think uh to see you uh because he uh, shaw is thin he says to see, <laughs> you, to see you uh you'd think britain was in a famine and he says to see you would make to <laughs> would make us know why <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> so that those those back and forth uh, little cutesy um, mm-hmm. um, jabs are actually. I mean, honestly, he's fun, but I I think I think he's kind of dangerous too. Because one of the things that he throws in early on, I don't know if you caught it, uh, Julian Paul, but I I noted. I don't know if Brian noted it because he's a he's a World War One guy like me. Just thinks it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he says something about a white feather. Oh yeah, right. I've, I've, seen, I've seen the feather. four feathers. Yeah, and, uh, but he but he specifically says when when such men are going about wearing their white feathers proudly, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's actually another thing that happened during World War One is he says uh, some lady came up to the, him on the street and said, um, "Why aren't you at the front?" And he says something very cutesy, um, which is. Uh, well, if you come around the side, you'll see that I have a front or something like that. Because <laughs> yeah. he's making another joke about being fat. Mm-hmm. But, but honestly, he's not at the front. Um, and how did World War One start? Anarchists, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, and how did the whole thing, uh, all the stuff that we're dealing with today, exactly. it, what what does that have to do with Brian? It has everything to do with me. Um, yeah. I mean, this, uh, you have this uh, this mode this time when people especially young women would give white feathers to men in london who were seen right. as their duty but not being at the front um just to be and, clear principle is not an anarchist per se these were nationalists i understand uh, that but they were called anarchists right that's because, because they're the, trying to they're trying this, to kill the rulership. yeah which you know i have to admit i, I have some sympathy for of course um, <laughs> but the but one one thing about this is that um Ah, oh, there's there's so many great things about this. Um, you, you know, there's the anticipation of World War One here. There's also that uh, yes. There's there's all you, you get a glimpse of the desire for violence that you see across Europe uh, leading up to 1914, 
Mm-hmm. So many people say what we really need is a good war to straighten yep. us. Mm-hmm. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, for example, in the U.S. is a big fan of that. Um, but you also see that sense of um, of strong uh, communal bonds that um, that will help take people to war, that yep. will uh, help them in 1914. That doesn't really exist in 1918 so much. Um, I did want to come back to a, a, another quote, though, before uh, I run out of time with bandwidth. Um, about the secret policeman bit, there's this really, I love the discussion between Symes and his recruiter uh, with mm-hmm. Blum's policeman. Yeah. Yes. Listen to this for a second. Uh, the ordinary detective goes to pothouses to arrest thieves. Pothouse, of course, means something different now. We go to artistic yeah. tea parties to detect pessimists. The ordinary detective discovers from a ledger or a diary that a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. <laughs> uh-huh. Those dreadful thoughts that drive men on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime. We were just in time to prevent the assassination of Hartlepool. That was entirely due to the fact that our Mr. Wolks thoroughly understood a triolet. Um, this is partly really funny. It um, is. And it, in the tongue-in-cheek way, reminds me very much of uh, Charlie Strauss's Landry, uh, Laundry series. Have you read this? Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I've favorite. read the first few. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you get that idea that um, you, know, you have to have the secret police organization to spy out in Strauss's case, mathematical discoveries that could actually yeah. sell their guts. Um, but then the other thing about this that is quite chilling is that this is basically uh, surveillance and data analysis of intellectuals to analyze pre-crime. Yep. Um, yeah. this, is, this is what we're doing now with, with big data. This is partly what we do with the war on terror. So it was a bit chilling to read that. Uh, I yeah, I, that's 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 sort of like why he's a dangerous guy because because he's smart and because he has a good turn of phrase, um, he can sort of defend things that are actually quite indefensible. Well, so, and what you find at the end though is that he's not actually defending it; he's kind of also yeah, he's attacking it because it all yeah, comes apart. Really it's not that. what they thought it was, right. and the point of them being there wasn't that. But yeah, it's put forward that way and. It is. It's, but what it does, too, is, if nothing else, the fact that he spells it out so clearly, even though it seems like he's defending it, it makes you think about it. So he's also putting it forth there on that side going, do we all know what's going on here? Whether my guy is doing this or not? There's a, uh, a, a point I should point out that, that it's not in the PDF, uh, the later reprint in Famous Fantastic Mysteries, but this whole uh, book starts with a poem. Right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's pretty, I, I didn't get it the first pass through, right? I was just like, okay, when's the story starting? Because this seems to go on forever. <laughs> However, um, Agreed. looking at it again, I think it makes a lot more sense, uh, especially... Looking at it not as uh, poetry but as sentences, um, so I'll just pick out a few and see if uh, see if you see what I mean. A cl- this is how it starts: A cloud was on the mind of men, and wailing went the weather. Yea, a sick cloud upon the soul when we were boys together. So um, I think this is actually sort of referenced later in the in the book when they all remember um, what their the I was going to say kingdom of God that they go to mm-hmm. sort of at the end um, when they all recognize parts of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Science announced non-entity and art admired decay. 
the world was old and ended, but you and I were gay. So uh, that, again, is his conservative uh, <laughs> leanings, right? It's like, mm-hmm. these newfangled ideas of evolution, I, I'll i stick with king and, or queen and country, or king and country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds almost like he's uh, not talking about anarchism at all, but he's talking about nihilism. And- yes, Yes. Lack of purpose, lack of... Right. He's conflating them. He's totally yeah. conflating them. And also, either uh, decadence, so you get some of that, of course, at the time, and also the uh, the uh, attraction to ruins and decay. I mean, you think about mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, works like, uh, when does Degeneration come out from Nordau? Uh, I don't know. Like Ten years before this. Uh, and then you get, uh, coming up soon will be Spengler's... Uh, you know, a classic uh, decline of the West. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, you get a lot, you know, in, in Britain, a large, there are many, many discussions that Britain has passed its prime, that it's uh, about to fall. I mean, you know, a lot of, and uh-huh. you know, the fiction, many, many stories of uh, fallen England, fallen British Empire, you know, most famously War of the World, just to, you know, I was just thinking of that, yeah. yeah. And so he's, uh, he's really asserting vitality, but it's very, it's a, Throughout the book, it's a very grim vitality. And when he's recruited by Sunday, he says, what do we want? You know, martyrs. I mean, yeah. you last to stand before the fall. Ah, well, that's a... So it's... A, yeah, there's there's a sense that... It's a uh, romantic kind of... Uh, yeah. It's very... But but he's against it. I mean, the book is ultimately against that kind of gloom. Um, by the end, it pulls it away in favor of, a, of an optimism. He, he apparently wrote it as a uh, as a sort of a cure for his melancholy. Um, he he was down in the dumps, and he's like, "Okay, I'm writing something," and and this was his cure. How interesting! Yeah, uh, th- there is a book I want to read called uh, uh, "Anatomy of Melancholy." Is that is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Yes. Our uh, medicine for melancholy, something like that. Um, which is, uh, yeah, it's not really a novel or anything. It's just a bunch of ideas, I guess, yeah. collected. Have you read that, Brian? Most of it, yeah. Yeah, okay. it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a giant scrapbook of stuff. Yeah, it's like a commonplace book or something. See, the thing is, is I'm, not, I'm not super melancholic myself, but I think what happens when you read people who are melancholic is is um <laughs> if they can manage to get anything written that is um because you know one of the effects is you know sort of not doing anything lassitude um <laughs> lassitude there's a good word a lovely word we should bring it back um it, one of the effects is it makes you thoughtful <laughs> and yes. in, in being thoughtful um you can you can sort of come to truths that you wouldn't be if you're just flashy which um this is not exactly flashy but it's so light in its to- in its stated topic you know um but then again i think like he's just using this as a like if this was written today um it wouldn't be about anarchists at all and you could still have the same sort of effect he'd uh, have a different word you're right he's not yeah. using it in the way that um we think of it i guess right I think it might be, I mean, he might be following that current that you see in Britain now of being uh, people focusing on Britons who travel to the Middle East to join ISIS. Right, right. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I don't know Chesterton well enough to try and translate him as century ahead, but um, but that might be one angle to do. But he's also, I mean, he's really. It's a it's a almost a pacifist book in a lot of ways. The the major the major crime committed by these anarchists is their love of destruction and violence, which he keeps turning to again and again. Uh, that they want to destroy everything, and uh, and that's that's their crime. Um, and, and that's a. Uh, you know, this is a bad misreading of anarchism at the time, but um, but that's really the the main attack he's got. Um, that they want to pull down and, and murder a lot of people. That's some of the comedy. You know, people mm-hmm. discuss murder over breakfast, that kind of thing. And it's a general. Again, I, I don't know, Julie. To me, as as an outsider, um, this sounds like if I can figure the expression, a, a pro life position. This sounds oh, yeah. I was thinking the one thing, there's a part where somebody, and I didn't mark it, it kind of imagines the bomb going off that the marquee is supposed to set, and he's thinking of the people as they're being destroyed, and he's like, that has to be stopped. I'm willing to die myself in order to make that Mm -hmm. not happen, and that's exactly the, the, it's the value of each human life. There are other ways to accomplish this. If you want to do violence, you could do violence, but don't do that, you know? It's different from, say, the the Asimov of, you know, violence being the, what was it, the last record of the incompetent? Um, yeah. <laughs> this is a case where even a terrible person's life is still life and therefore worth defending. Yes, because up to the very, very, very end, you don't know what's going on inside that person's head. And to speak as the insider, the Christian, only God knows and that person knows. So you have to give them every single chance you can as long as you're not endangering other people. Here's a question. Um, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear your answers. Um, who is the man who recruited all of them ultimately? Sunday, I would say. He's playing both roles. He's playing Sunday. He's playing the guy behind the people who are recruiting the, the secret policemen. So, yeah, he's... He's the Alpha mm-hmm. and the Omega, to use a Christian <laughs> yeah. term here. Yeah. Nicely put. <laughs> it, it, there was, there's a story. <laughs> there's this, you know, the thing is, is it, in Syria, right, the war is winding down. Um, apparently, Trump has uh, cut the money to the rebels. Um uh, it's a 90% decrease in violence or something. Um, uh, what's so interesting is that it, it's it's like the war has started and then it ends and you don't sort of know why until you look at it many years after, right? You say, why did the Vietnam War happen? Um, a, a lot of this stuff, it's, it's like just big agents doing things like literally pumping money into it. So why is this anarchist council exist? Well, because we got to <laughs> stop anarchists. Is 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 what the setup is at the beginning, right? Right. Um, and all these these men who who feel the need to stop anarchy, <laughs> they're the anarchists. They're the major members, right? And then right. the the point that the point that uh, you know. I can't believe that any common man would support like this is this rigorous faith he has in in the common sensibility of 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 the people. It's true. World War One didn't happen because the common man wanted a war. 
It was because right. a certain class of people thought it would be uh, honorable or proper or what what have you for it to happen. And they, they made it happen. They did it on purpose. Right? They set up these alliances. Um, so it is right to want to not have the government act badly. And when he goes away from that and, and goes talking about God, it becomes it becomes a different subject for the for the book, I guess. I wanted it to be more uh, I knew it wasn't going to be that way, but I want I want this book to be like rewritten sort of as a as a hardcore secret agent style uh <laughs> uh book, you know what I mean? I want that version of it. And and we- when Kim Newman does it in Anno Dracula, um it it doesn't quite do it as well because, you know, it's it's so busy spending time with uh uh, professor, professor de worms might be um played by uh who's sherlock holmes and arch enemy moriarty. moriarty moriarty right and then um uh there's a great line in 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 the comic book adaptation uh they never name him explicitly but it's fu manchu right um and the daughter of the dragon and uh, right uh, fu manchu like fu manchu is this this boogeyman that i love so much and when you read the the boogeyman of the first book, you end up, I ended up totally sympathizing with Fu Manchu. He is trying to overthrow British occupation of China, right? He's, he's insidious. He gets in ever like, dude, these guys are so racist. They're, that are after him. The secret policemen that are after him. Yeah. I'm like, go for it, Fu. <laughs> you know, I'm with you. There is now we're kind of slightly off topic. There is a sympathy argument to be made for Fu Manchu as in trying to fight against Western imperialism in yeah. Asia. The whole the whole idea of a pan pan Asia, pan Mongolia, the whole reaching all the way back to back in the days when Genghis Khan trembled the world and Asia was powerful and now we're being humbled by the West. Fu Manchu as his heir can help throw off the shackles of western imperialism so there's oh yeah of course using the opium trade i'm sorry i just reread the first one i'm just like yeah it's 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 turnabout is fair play right is the idea and all the accuse all the accusations of of how the chinese are corrupting uh, corrupting the british with their opium um pot kettle black right exactly they're all bad well, I'm reminded of uh, in uh, Alan Moore's uh, comic book series, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, that uh, Captain Nemo becomes an anti-imperialist crusader. <laughs> yeah. He, he kind of is that. He is that from the original book, though, as well. But, but he right? gets accentuated in uh, in the in the more uh, in the more graphic novel. He it really put, brings that that home. Yeah, well, he's he's ma- he's making it for in the foreground rather than the excuse for him having a submarine, right? Yeah. See, Jesse, can I can I bring you and Julie together for one more minute, though? Um, sure. Paul, I'm not trying to leave you out. I'm just going based on what what they've been saying. Well, um, Paul was raised Catholic, right? <laughs> I was raised. I was raised Catholic. Oh, there you go. Ah, ah so this is one of the, I'm an outsider. As I was raised, it's, it's uh, Majesty's loyal opposition. Then what were you raised as, a uh, Brian? Oh, uh, with nothing. Uh, I had Me no too. Thing. And uh, my my mother was a hardcore Stalinist. Which only- oh. You don't hear that every day. No, no, I believe that's a first for me to meet somebody like with that background. Wow, she she was convinced that Stalin was the great uh, hero of the 20th century. But 
Um, wow. When we're talking about politics and religion, it's, it's important to know that you know, anarchism is a really, really diverse field. I mean, it covered a wide range of ground. Um, and sometimes you do get people who combine anarchism politically with Christian faith, I mean, most famously Leo Tolstoy, um, mm. and, or uh, closer to home in the U.S., uh, Dorothy Day in uh, <laughs> Chicago. Uh, yeah, but then yeah. you, get, you get the flip side. You get people who, uh, saw, who attacked organized religion as being part of mechanisms of oppression, a Marx, famously. Um, and again, Marx, Marxists and the anarchists were uh, frenemies in many ways. Lots of overlap, lots of battling. Um, there's a, a, a French organization which had its slogan, Ni Dieu ni Maître, uh, no, neither God nor Master, uh, you know, combining these together. So it's ha- having Chesterton take aim at both of those and seeing them in combination as being merely homicidal I might disagree with that, but I think that's actually a pretty coherent argument to make. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's true. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly what the question is. That wasn't a question. Oh, a statement. It was something to react to. <laughs> um, well, I'm now, sorry, well, I got I got I stopped think, at thinking yeah. about Dorothy Day because I don't think she was actually an anarchist. She just was. She radically lived the gospel. That's but she did it within. The church. Yeah. So I I think of anarchism, I guess my definition of anarchism is what do you what are you against? What do you got? Mm-hmm. You know? That's uh, um, that's Dean, so. right? James Dean. <laughs> is that is it, <laughs> I'm proud to have quoted him if only I'd have known. <laughs> I think it's in the wild one, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and speaking that's not of James Dorothy Dean, Day, that's the other guy. Um, yep. you're, you're thinking, um, yeah, the wild bunch, uh, the wild one is Marla Brando, uh, yeah. Brando, right? It's Brando, I think. Yeah, it's Brando. Yeah. Well, whoever that um, screenwriter was good for them. It's actually, it's Crichton well, in Red Dwarf. <laughs> That's how I know it. There you go. <laughs> oh, says, oh, oh. Was, what are you rebelling against? <laughs> what you got? <laughs> well, I was thinking though of Dorothy Day. It takes me back to this one quote that I loved, where it, I read this and thought about it several times because I just hadn't thought about it this way. Where, and somebody had referred to it already, the martyr thing. Well, really, said Syme, I don't know any profession of which mere willingness is the final test. I do, said the other martyrs. Mm-hmm. I am condemning you to death. Good day. Good day. It's so. Finished. And I was like, oh yeah. Well, it's um, you know, it's. It's fascinating to see. I mean, I, I, I've deliberately withheld from giving you a, a lengthy lecture on the history of anarchism because, <laughs> because it's huge. I mean, it, it, you're talking about like you know, 200 years of political philosophy and organization that on a global stage with so many different versions and so many connections. Right. I mean, in Britain, the first anarchist philosopher is, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft's husband, uh, Mary mm. Shelley's dad, um, mm-hmm. Godwin. Um, who his great detective novel is arguably a great anarchist novel, um, you know, Caleb Williams. But it, it goes on for quite some time. I just, you know, for Chesterton, it seems like he has the, uh, he has the boogeyman in mind. Uh, yeah, or like you said, nihilism. In a, but he does take, use it to take shots at all kinds of things. You would be interesting to compare this to. If you think of nihilism, it would be to compare it to, uh, to Yenev's, uh great little book, uh, Parents and Children, uh, usually translated as Fathers and Sons, uh-huh. uh, which is about, uh, it's an interesting little book about, uh, as it says, parents and children. But the, uh, 
anti-hero, the villain, is uh, a nihilist in Bazarov, um, who is that <laughs> and nihilism is the point of the book. Is, is defend, defeating that nihilism is Turgenev's point. Um, but Bazarov gives all these arguments. Well, you know, like what's more useful, a painting or a pair of shoes? And, well, a pair of shoes, obviously, because they help protect you. And painting does nothing, and so on. It's a it's a great little book. People read it. It's like hundred pages long, and uh, huh. it's a near contemporary, uh, about a generation earlier. But it's really explicitly about nihilism, which is an active Russian thing in that century. Right, right. I'll have to look for that. I would also like to mention something, and I I <laughs> sent you this, Jesse, mm-hmm. just because I thought it was the perfect description. I was looking around on Goodreads at other people's comments, and um, Dan Schwent. S-C-H-W-E-N-T on Goodreads, kind of said, The man who was Thursday reads like P.G. Woodhouse writing from a Philip K. Dick plot while on a NyQuil bender. Right. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> isn't that perfect? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it, it is, uh, <laughs> it is not for everybody. <laughs> this right. book is not for everybody, but, um, I'm glad I read it. I, I think, um, I think it's it's good to experience uh, something so different. It's really different from other stuff in that it, it is ungrounded. Um, he's not. It's almost not a novel. I don't. It doesn't have a feel of a novel. The plot doesn't doesn't flow like a novel's does. And what with the ending, I guess it's a dream. Mm-hmm. It is a dream. Yeah, a nightmare. He says um, when when all the characters are wondering whether they're dreaming. <laughs> I'm 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 pretty much in good with any book like that. <laughs> it, it reminds me of a book we read recently together, which is uh, it reminds me of Thirty Nine Steps. Yeah, oh, I love that book. Mm-hmm. It's really exciting, but also there's that wonderful moment right at the end when uh, our hero has found the German spies, but he's not convinced, and they're trying to prove that they're English. It's yes, of- right. They're like you know talking about tennis, and they're desperately. <laughs> right words and the right clothes and the right and they almost pull it off and you get that if you pause the book there you get that vertiginous moment of wow is this real as he yeah. just yeah not the wrong guys completely i mean and, and, and that's the that those are the points yeah. where adapters people who chant you know who take the text and can do something with it they can decide to go another way right than the than the author did because the author sets sets up these moments so that we, we as readers or participants or adapters can go in and, and, and consider the other alternatives. Maybe I've been wrong this whole time, mm-hmm. which, which is what this book is basically about, right? You've got a bunch of, a bunch of people who are wrong about everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I have to say, considering my idea of anarchy, um, this might have been an unintentional comic thing, um, and which is the we're wrong about everything, which is I thought it was hilarious to have an anarchist group. Yes. It's I, like, uh, so that's, that's the thing. <laughs> is, right? No, no, no. no, no. What, what I like <laughs> about the setup, though, is that <laughs> it's a council. I, I think the setup's pretty good. It's a council, right? And there, there's no predominant day of the week. They say the president is is Sunday. Right. Uh, so how do you get a of the week to do it? Well, I guess. Yeah. Um, I I I make a calendar. Monday's my first of the week. No, yeah, in uh, England my, at that time. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it it's the you know it's the day that 
everyone has something to do in the morning, I guess. Um, I bought, I just bought a, another kind of calendar at this, at the store, uh, at the dollar store. And I was like, oh, great. I can use this. It's a really big calendar, right? Turn, and it said chores on it, chore calendar, because I'm going to use it for my scheduling. But turns out that I, I didn't look at it closely enough. It doesn't have Sunday on it at all. <laughs> it's just <laughs> Monday to Saturday. I'm like, just, damn, I, I can't do anything with this. Cause I take I, Sunday off. No, I have to do a podcast. On well, Sunday I know off. that. <laughs> me too, but I consider this fun. It's not the same for me as it is for you. When you're yes, organizing it, needs, it. It needs to be scheduled. No, that's very true. I would like to also mention, um, when we're talking about the Father Brown stories, uh, Brian mentioning that story, and then he sent a link. Um, it's one of the Club of Queer Trades stories. I love those stories, and those are like this in a sense. They're kind of just off the wall. But they're short stories, and they, they have a frame linked together with a couple of brothers. So um, you might enjoy those. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Um, we are doing a book upcoming uh, that I'm thinking is something to do with this one. I don't know how that happened. Uh, it's, it's funny because I, I, know, I, I know that there's a reason for me to put things on the schedule. But I never know why exactly they were there at the time of actually recording them. Uh, so then who is Thursdays today and then Neverwhere. That's the one. Next uh-huh. week. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Now, Neverwhere apparently uh, is influenced by a G.K. Chesterton book. Um, was inspired by a G.K. Chesterton book that I'm blanking on. But uh, I haven't read it, so I was hoping... Uh, to uh, ask folks. I wonder... Um, what the heck is it called? I mean, I haven't mentioned to this point in the podcast, this is the first mm-hmm. DJ Casterson I've ever read, so I'm not the person to answer that question. I mean, I- I've heard of him. It's like, I mean, he's a name, but it's the first Chesterton I've actually sat down and actually listened to in any way, shape, or form. The and Napoleon so of Notting Hill so is the one that... Anybody read that? Oh. No. Oh, no. As I've said, I start a lot of his fiction and then I go, oh, I can't do this. But after this, I think I'll try those again. That's another famous one, yeah. Let me read the uh, Wikipedia uh, intro to the Napoleon of Notting Hill. Brian, you haven't read it? I have not. Okay. Uh, written in 1904, set in a nearly unchanged London of 1984. Although the novel set in the future, it is, in effect, set in an alternate reality of Chesterton's own period, with no advances in technology or changes in the class system or attitudes. It postulates an impersonal government not described in any detail, but apparently content to operate through a figurehead king randomly chosen. Does that sound interesting? Yeah. I, I didn't know that... Random kings. Hmm. Yeah, it's, so it's classifying it as speculative fiction or political satire rather than science fiction. Uh, just being set in the future is not qualified enough for it, I guess, because it's not really science, right? It's it's reflections. Well, though, if the, yeah, if there's no speculative element to being set in the future, it's not really science fiction in my view. It's just, yeah, you're just putting it in a different time period. So that's... that's uh, a g- science fiction adjacent at best to my view well it, he it's rat it's radical because it has a the kings are chosen at random yeah 
Why? What's up with that? Such a ter- you know, uh, I think Chesterton would not have been a fan of the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. Oh, oh God. I, I, yeah, I would imagine he was horrified. Or the horrified American Revolution the or pretty much any revolution, right? He loved America. He thought well, America yeah, was but the greatest. I mean, and Americans and uh, so much about them. I think, I think, though, you know, at the time, had, had he been around at the time, he would not have been in favor. I don't know. Um, I, mean, I you don't know. know. Okay, the great conservative philosopher who uh, wrote, you know, kind of founded modern conservatism with his you know, detailed take on the French Revolution in the 1790s. But as an Irishman, he was a big fan of the American Revolution uh, and supported <laughs> it. Uh, so, I mean, that's one, that's one, you know, conservative to think about. Uh, I, would, I agree he would definitely, uh, Chester would have, I, I'm, I think it's not a risk to say he would have abhorred the Russian Revolution, specifically the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. Yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, the Russian Revolution, you want to talk about a complicated revolution, and I only know a bit, but I know it's there were so many factions and everything. But and, and I've read stuff since I've been rereading American history just to kind of go, okay, we lived through that stuff. We can certainly live through everything now. It's going to happen. And um, the thing about the American Revolution and the French Revolution is how very different they were. And people like to toss it off as we're throwing off the king, but it was done in such a different way and with such different leadership and results to the people that you can't really equate them both when you're saying, well, he would have hated this one and that one because of, you know, he might have because the divine right of kings and so forth. But um they're often not equated to people of the time because they saw them as doing very different things. I would just will point out that um, as uh, one lone Canadian on the, on the <laughs> group, still loyal to uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of Canada. Um, God bless her. <laughs> she's on my money. Um, <laughs> the the yeah. crown lands nearby are all belonging to her. I'm not I'm kidding. Her subjects. Um, I will point out that uh, for Canadians, um, the vast majority of Canadians who were affected by the American Revolution were all called Tories yes. um, in the United States. And they fled from the U.S. to uh, Canada and other countries as well. Um, and they were not fans. <laughs> they there were. is an amazing book called Oliver Wiswell by Kenneth Roberts. That's all about that. I'm not about going to Canada, but it's about yeah. his protagonist is a Tory during the revolution. And it's just, I love that guy's writing. It's, it's could be more dynamic, but he's so good at um, writing historical fiction. That's really accurate and giving you the tone of the times. And I've never forgotten that book. I've read it several times. So yeah, I totally get it. Although um, not commonly said anymore, we still have a conservative party and, uh, it's been reformed a few times, but they in the eighties they were still called the Tories. Uh, <laughs> okay. and, uh, and it is it is a you know a legacy of uh, basically Canada's whole history is sort of a defense against uh, American radicalism, um, you know <laughs> manifest destiny, etc. So um, <laughs> you guys have a distorted perspective on on your your revolution because you're living in the revolution, right? In the same well. way that. We have a distorted uh, experience of what the uh, Iranian revolution is about. I don't think you could say distorted because after a certain point, it is just the point of view. I mean, distorted is just the opposite point. You know, it's a different point of view, but distorted is... Well, it's like you're too close. Yeah. 
it, well, if you're too close to something, it's very hard to see it from... Uh, well, at some point, you have to accept a certain form of reality, which is what The Man Who Was Thursday is about, right? What reality are you seeing, and have I you guess. explored it enough? Um, I was super proud of knowing about the Tories until just now. Thanks, Jesse. You've ruined it. <laughs> oh, well, I, I thought you were going to say that was not the first nor the last time that Americans have colonized Canada. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, every twitch we did our best. of your uh, elephantness affects our mouseness uh, greatly. You're not well, a no, mouse. Well, that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, our previous prime minister n- named... Uh, the current uh, named after the current one. What's the current one's name? Trudeau. Yeah. Trudeau. Yeah, his father was a uh, uh, an intellectual. His son is not. Good. <laughs> you're anarchist. You remember your queen, but not your prime minister. Man, just, just, dude, right. prime ministers come and go. The queen has been with us since uh, World War Two. Oh, well, kind of like, um, you know, kind of like various diseases that are inherent in biology. Honestly, honestly, prime ministers are not very important in the grand scheme of things. Well, uh, uh, premier of British Columbia is far more important to my the, life. Who's the premier of British Columbia? Uh, who? Um, Horgan? John Horgan? I, I You're really know. proving Brian's point here. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's um, a, my mom helped get him elected. Oh, right. Yeah. And uh, well, they're, the, just... they're the radical leftist uh, party. Yeah, uh, that's not very leftist. Speaking of uh, facing reality, I have to face the reality of taking my son back to university. Um, oh. I have to run. Um, all right. I did want to thank all of you for a lovely conversation. Thank, thank you, you. This has been fun. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Let's do this. So looking forward to somebody being able to explain this to me. <laughs> <laughs>